1: There's a second way we learn from David that God deals with evildoers. He not only laughs at them, he also turns their own weapons against them. Verses 14 and 15: The wicked have drawn the sword, bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own hearts, and their bows will be broken.
2: Reader's Digest had a story a few years ago about a couple of Florida neighbors who had a dispute so serious that apparently one of them made a Molotov cocktail and threw it at the neighbor's trailer house. Bad timing. Right about then, the wind shifted and the burning embers of that fire came back and set his own home on fire. It's a good thing for him that the police arrested him or he'd have had no place to sleep for a while. You know, it's too bad justice isn't always so poetic. It seems like most times justice is not only not poetic, it's backwards. But it won't always be that way. Welcome to Verse by Verse, a radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we're continuing our series of lessons from Psalm 37. It's called Fret Not Because of Evildoers. From the very beginning of the church age, the followers of Jesus have been under attack. Mostly it's emotional or social. But it's very often violent and even fatal. A friend of mine just left to return to his ministry in India where he faces continual persecution, even from the government. At least one of his co-workers has been killed already for his faith. Before he left, I prayed for him directly from Psalm 37. This is a great passage for those who are in danger of being frustrated by the injustice of this world. So, let's get started. Here's Pastor Steve.
1: Now... Going back then to Psalm 37, it seems that the kind of persecution that the believers of David's day were facing were attacks of a violent nature. And I say that because verse 14 points that out. The wicked, they've drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. So this was a very serious situation, quite dangerous because their lives were in danger. Therefore, in light of the gravity of this situation, it may strike us as odd, surprising, that David proceeds to tell us that God's reaction to all this is that he laughs. He laughs, he says, at the at the wicked for the plotting that they do against the righteous. Notice verse 13. The Lord laughs at him, meaning the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. Now, the question is, why does God laugh at the wicked? It certainly isn't because persecution is funny. There's nothing funny about that. Violent attacks against God's people are no laughing matter. Notice the last phrase of verse 13, because it's here where David tells us why God laughs at the wicked. He says, for he sees his day is coming. God laughs because he knows that there's coming a day when he will judge these individuals for their sin. The day that David is talking about is the day of judgment. It's the day of reckoning, when God will put a halt to all of this and deal justly with those who have harmed his children. The day is approaching, David says. It's coming, and so God laughs. But listen, God doesn't laugh at the judgment of the wicked because of judgment, because he thinks that judgment is, is a rather humorous thing. There is nothing humorous about judgment it is actually the most solemn thing in the entire universe. The Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in that. He certainly doesn't laugh at their judgment. Now, the reason God laughs at the wicked is because of their absurdity, because this is ludicrous. It's sort of a mocking laugh. He laughs at their absurdity in thinking that they'll get away with their plotting and scheming and murderous intentions. That's why he laughs. He laughs. But they won't because there is coming a day, David says, when God will judge them. So it's actually comical to God that puny man thinks he can shake his fist at the Almighty and harm his people without any consequences for his actions as if God didn't take notice of them. That's why God laughs, because it's ludicrous. Spurgeon put this ludicrous, laughable situation into perspective when he said, the evil man does not see how close his destruction is upon his heels. He boasts of crushing others when the foot of justice is already uplifted to trample him as the mire of the street, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and yet plotting against his children, poor souls, thus to run upon the point of Jehovah's spear. Now, none of us would or should ever take persecution lightly, or judgment lightly, because persecution hurts. It even kills, and it's such a serious thing. However, here's something to keep in mind when you are persecuted, whether it be in physical attacks or a lie about you or not getting that promotion at work because of your faith. Whatever form persecution comes to you in, keep in mind that if God laughs, at the plotting of the wicked against us, that we should at least be able to keep from being fearful and worried about persecution because we know that God is aware of everything. God laughs because it's ludicrous. He'll deal in judgment those who harm us. Their day is coming. So we don't laugh at it, but we don't certainly need to fret over it to worry about it, let God laugh because he is the sovereign one and he knows how ridiculous people are. We don't need to worry because our God is sovereign and he will deal in judgment with those who bring harm to his people. And so the first way that David says God deals with evildoers who try to harm his people is number one, he laughs at them. There's a second way we learn from David that God deals with evil doers. He not only laughs at them, he also turns their own weapons against them. Verses 14 and 15, the wicked have drawn the sword, bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own hearts and their bows will be broken. David portrays these evildoers as cowards, cowardly men, men who have taken out their swords from their, their cases and they have bent their bows ready to attack those of God's people, notice, who are most vulnerable, the weak and the needy. Those who are not strong enough to defend themselves, but who are very godly in their conduct. History of the church is filled with stories of brutal attacks against the people of God still going on today, missionaries, pastors, local churches, women, children, godly people who won't or who can't physically defend themselves, and often these attacks take the lives Of people. However, there is coming a day, David says, when God will turn the tables on these cowards, and the very weapons that they have used against his people will be used against them. That's the point of verse 15. Look at it again. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. David says that the way that God will deal with those who harm his people is he will use their own swords against them, to slay them. In other words, their evil will come back just like a, a boomerang. You send a boomerang, it comes back at you. Their evil that they used on others will be turned back and used on them. Now, this is a general principle that God often uses to judge those who hurt his people. The very devices of evil that they've used, those are the same things that will be used to destroy them. You see this principle illustrated in the story of Haman, that evil man from the book of Esther who had the gallows built to hang Mordecai on them. You know the story. Instead, he was hung on the very gallows he built to hang Mordecai. Saul, King Saul tried to kill David with the sword, but he died after being mortally wounded. He died by falling on his own sword. Listen, The way we would put this principle today, we would say what goes around comes around. We also might call it poetic justice. What others do to you will eventually be done to them. All of us have people who are vicious towards us, said horrible things, have harmed us. But you can rest in the great truth that those who lie about you will suffer by being lied about by others. At some point in their lives that will happen. And those who verbally attack you will be verbally attacked by others. And those who have been malicious to you will experience others being malicious to them. And those who have cheated you will be cheated by others. And those who try to harm you physically will be physically harmed by others. That's the principle that David is teaching us. One Bible teacher so articulately put it. He said, malice outwits itself. It drinks the poison cup which it mixed for another, and burns itself in the fire, which it kindled for its neighbor. Why do we need to fret at the prosperity of the wicked when they are so industriously ruining themselves while they fancy that they are ruining the saints? So take heart. Unbelievers who harm you can only do their harming for just a little while. Eventually, their own tactics will rise up and be used Against them. Because God will make sure of it. That's why, by the way, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We don't need to do that. Paul said, leave room for the wrath of God. Let him deal with people. He'll do his dealings with them in vengeance far better than we would anyway. The very devices of evil they used against us will be used against them. God will make sure that it is. And so, up to this point, David has taught us, Two ways that God deals with those who persecute his people. Number one, he laughs at them because of the absurdity of what puny man does. Number two, he turns their own weapons against them. But continuing this psalm, David gives us a third way that God deals with evildoers. He tells us that he takes away their wealth. Notice verse 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Now, as you'll recall, one of the problems, one of the major problems that the believers of that day had was that these evildoers in their culture, their neighbors, were so materially prosperous, wealthy, while they were not. They were envious of them, jealous of them, of the abundance of the wicked. But notice here in verse 16 what David says. He tells them that the little that they have, meaning the little that believers have, it's actually better than the abundance of the wicked. Now, how, how is that the case? Why is that the case? How is it better to be a believer and have just a little than to be an unbeliever and have a lot? Well, we're told the answer in verse 17. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. Now, the reason it is better, David says, to be a believer and have a little than to be someone who is wicked and has an abundance, is because eventually God is going to take away the wealth of the wicked by what David calls breaking their arms. Now, this is not to be taken literally. That God physically and literally breaks the arms of every unbeliever. Our hospitals would be filled. People in emergency room, if that was the case. No, I take it that... This is not to be taken in a literal sense. The point is that God is going to take away their ability to make money and to do evil. In other words, the arms that were lifted up against God and his people will eventually be crushed and they will lose everything. In the New Testament, Jesus spoke about this. He spoke about the futility of material riches, the futility of making that your life. He gave a parable about a wealthy man who made so much money agriculturally that he had to build new barns to contain all of his produce. But Jesus said he was a fool. He was a fool because that's all he thought about. And it was all taken away from him at death. How much did he leave behind? He left everything behind. You take nothing with you. And he made no provision for his soul. In the pursuit of his riches, he gave no thought to his eternal soul. And so when he died, this man was totally unprepared to stand before a holy God and give an account of his life. That's why Jesus said right after this, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? What difference does it make? If he had everything in this world, but he's lost his soul forever. So God deals with the wicked by taking away their wealth, sometimes in this lifetime, but always when they die, always. However, that's not the way that the Lord deals with those who are believers. Notice what David says in verse 17, that the Lord sustains the righteous. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that the righteous don't die because we do die. I take it that David means that even in the most difficult of times financially, when there's very little money, God sustains his people in the sense that he provides for their needs. In other words, while the wicked often lose their money because God judges them, the Lord makes sure that those believers who are poor have exactly what they need. This is the point that Jesus was making in Matthew 6 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything you need will be provided for you. Everything you need, not necessarily luxuries, but what you need. So you don't need to worry about will you have enough clothing and will you have shelter and will you have nourishment the same point Paul made in Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not out of his riches, but according to his riches, his infinite riches. God is a loving Father who does sustain his children financially. We may not always have an abundance of things, but the Lord is faithful to give us what we need. Listen. Even if God has to send some birds to bring food to you, he'll do it. That's what he did for Elijah. That's what he did for Elijah when some ravens brought food to the prophet Elijah, who was isolated by a brook. So why don't we need to fret over evildoers? We don't need to fret because God deals with them by, number one, laughing at them because it's so silly, their thinking and their actions. He turns their own weapons against them, so they get back exactly what they've given to others. Number three, he takes away their wealth, the wealth that made them think they were so important. But there's a fourth way that David tells us that God deals with the wicked. He says that he will cause them to vanish forever. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Now concerning believers whom David refers to in these verses as the blameless, he says that the Lord knows their days. What does he mean by that? Certainly the Lord knows everybody's days, but the thought here is that the Lord knows all about them and he is intimately involved in their lives. That's the thought. He's active, he's involved. And, David says, the blameless will continue to be sustained and satisfied with food off of the land. Even during difficult times, even during famine, God takes care of his own. However, it's not the case with the wicked. David says that the wicked will perish. Now, once again, this doesn't mean that they will simply die because all people die, whether they are believers or unbelievers. But look again at verse 20, and you'll see that David describes the death of these unbelievers as vanishing, like smoke. It's briefly here, one moment, and then it's gone the next. They vanish. What does he mean by that? He means that the wicked pass from the scene quickly, quickly. They may do all kinds of mischief during their lifetime, but then they die, and you know what? They're heard from no more, no more. There's nobody calling and coming back from the dead, from the wicked. This is the future, folks, of unbelievers. They are here today, gone tomorrow. They just vanish. They are not heard from again. Or as one person put it, a puff is the end of all their puffing. Their fuming ends in smoke. Listen, this is the fate of all those who persecute you. At whatever level they do it, and hate Christ, and hate his righteousness, and hate his people, they will someday just vanish and be gone. They ought to feel sorry for them, not fret over them. But tragically, Tragically, sadly, they do live on. They live on an eternity. And I say tragically because it is an eternity in hell. I can't think of anything worse than that because, you know what, there is nothing worse than that. But no one has to go to hell. No one. You can be saved from hell by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. Christ Died to rescue sinners like us from the wrath of God. How did he do that? He took on that wrath himself. When he was dying, the wrath of God the Father was being poured out on him. He was being abandoned by the Father. He was forsaken by the Father so that those who trust him as their Savior would never be forsaken. That's the purpose of the cross. Listen, You're not a Christian. Don't waste your life. Don't continue wasting your life on yourself because in the end, it's not worth it. No matter how much pleasure you have in this world, no matter how much you enjoy from doing evil in this world, you will not get away with it. In the end, you will vanish from the earth and be cast into eternal darkness unless you repent and turn to Christ Trusting him, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved from hell. But if you are already saved, if you are a Christian, then you must appropriate Christ's peace. Stop fretting over difficulties, especially how you are mistreated or thought of by unbelievers. You don't need to fret. Why? Because God laughs at these unbelievers, at the wicked. He takes their own weapons and uses it against them. Don't strike out at them. Let him deal with them. He eventually takes away their wealth. It means nothing. They'll lose it all. And finally, he causes them to vanish forever. They are insignificant as far as eternity is concerned. So take heart, trust the Lord, and stop worrying. Persecution may indeed be coming, to our land, it's sweeping over the world. It may indeed be here of a physical, violent nature. May the Lord bring these truths back to our minds when it comes. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray for those who are still without Christ. We pray that the preaching of the Word of God would bear fruit and bring about faith in Christ. May there be some today, Lord, hearing these truths who would be convicted, pierced in their hearts of their great need for salvation, realizing that life is futile without you, that they will someday vanish and never be heard from again unless they turn to you. We pray for salvation to come. We pray that you will help people to think, think that nothing in this world is worth forfeiting their soul. We pray for salvation. We pray for for those of us, Lord, who do know you, that will take these words to heart and recognize that no matter what unbelievers do to us, no matter what they say to us, no matter what is coming down the road in terms of persecution, that we are equipped and we are ready, and that, Lord Jesus, you warned us and you said that persecution was coming, and you said that your peace was available, we pray that you'll help us to appropriate that peace. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's going through persecution right now, maybe a family member who is striking out, lashing out in anger, not even realizing it's totally because of the gospel, just righteousness bothers them. I pray that you'll strengthen the, the faith, the stamina, the endurance of your dear people to stand firm and to take these truths to heart. Lord, we thank you that you care about us even in difficult times. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Amen. If you have questions about salvation or need help with a spiritual question, you can call verse-by-verse at 727-441-1714 or call that number to order a free CD with both parts of the two-part message we just heard. Ask for message 5184, Fret Not Because of Evildoers, Part 4. The phone number again is 727-441-1714. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher for these daily lessons, and he's also the teaching pastor at Lakeside. You can find out about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com. And don't forget the verse-by-verse website, versebyverseradio.org. This is your announcer, Jerry Peterson. For the past few days, Pastor Steve has focused largely on the fate of the evildoers that King David wrote about here in Psalm 37. But right in the middle of verse 21, the psalmist makes a transition. In the first 20 verses, David was pretty grim. But he did give us good reason to not be jealous of the apparent success of the wicked. On the next verse by verse, Pastor Steve will move on to a more optimistic section of Psalm 37. So I hope you'll join us.